Thank you, choir. While you're being seated, if you would go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 91. Psalm chapter 91 there uh, in the Bible is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I will give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, this is about 16 verses, Psalm 91. We're going to cover all 16 of them. Uh, but we're going to deal with the first two verses for a good bit of the first part of the message. So I know how some of you think, right? When, when we're like 25 minutes in and we're still in verse 2 and we're going all the way through verse 16, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be as long the second part as it is the first part. We'll cover that last part of uh, this psalm a lot more quickly than the first part. But these first two verses in Psalm 91... I mean, there's just a lot there, and I want to spend the time that, that's necessary just kind of dealing with those two verses. So one of the things that struck me after the, uh, after the storm that, uh, that came this, this past week um, really happened afterwards. Now, I was here for Matthew, as many of you were. I was here for Tropical Storm Hermine before that, Irma after that, and uh, just others since then. And, and it was kind of the way back then, you know, this way back then as well, but I had forgotten. But that day after the storm, I was driving uh, on the island. I'd left the house, and I was driving uh, kind of towards, towards town. And uh, what struck me was the blue sky. Man, it was just this bright, almost like an extra shade of bright blue. And I don't know if you noticed that the day after as well, but it was so incredibly, it was just, it, it just grabbed your attention how bright and how clear that blue sky was the day after the storm. And it was interesting because it, it dawned on me, I, I thought, you know, that the blue sky had been there all along. I mean, it's not like it went away. It was still in existence. It was still there. It's just you couldn't see it because of the storm clouds that had come in to block our view of it. And there's a lot of the way it is in our Christian lives as well that we go through times, we go through maybe events or certain experiences or seasons in our life where it seems as though it's a little bit hard to see the blue sky, meaning it's a little bit harder to see God's presence. Maybe you've gone through seasons like that or experiences where you didn't really feel God's closeness the way that you had at other times in your life. Or, or maybe you didn't really sense that he was right there with you. Maybe because the nature of some of the experiences maybe you've been through or the season that you were in, maybe you were at a place where it seemed like you were beginning to ask questions you had never asked before. And you were beginning to wonder, like, is God really there the way he promises that he is? Is he really faithful the way the word says that he is? Is there really substance to these songs that we sing and to the verses that we read, or is it something less? You see, hard times can bring up, bring up struggles uh, and bring up questions we've never asked before. You see that in the book of Psalms, right? You see some really hard questions that are asked in the book of Psalms, but as we're going to see here in just a second, God has a response to that in the same way that the blue sky is always there in the worst of storms. No matter how dark the clouds are that roll in, God is also always there, no matter how difficult the journey may be for us also. And whenever we begin to move through this particular passage of Scripture, we see such a great application of the truth of who God is and what that means to us, especially in the midst of difficulty. So maybe for you, this is especially pertinent today because you're kind of in the midst of one of those storms. Maybe for you, you're at a place where it is hard to see God. You can't see the blue sky of who God is. It's hard for you to trust the blue sky of the promises that he's made to you. Maybe it's because of a health issue in your life. Maybe you've gone to, uh, to see a doctor, you've gotten test results, or, or there's a surgery coming that you didn't expect to be on the horizon for you at this stage in your life. And it's caused you to, to have a hard time seeing God for who he is. Maybe it's really relational in nature, right? Maybe you're going through a, a, a relational uh, uh, difficulty right, right now. You, you've sort of kind of hit the skids a little bit and, and things are not easy. It's tenuous at best. 
you know, maybe with a spouse or with a family member, one of your kids or a grandchild or a, or a friend or a coworker or, or whoever, and you're in the midst of this relational difficulty and that relationship matters to you and your heart is breaking on the inside and it seems as though you're, you know, you're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? You know, it's a little hard to see the blue sky of who you are. Where are you in the midst of this? What's your purpose for all of this? Maybe it has nothing to do with health. Maybe it has nothing to do with relationship. Maybe for you, it's, it's a crisis of faith. One of our grow groups right now, a Life 365 group uh, that meets at 9 o'clock, they're going through a study called Experience of God. It's this classic, uh, never grow, grows old study by Henry Blackaby. And it's in that study that Blackaby brings out the whole concept of a crisis of faith that many of us find ourselves in the midst of at, at certain times in life. Where the rubber hits the road, we begin to wonder, is, is what I believe really true, you know, because the, the dark clouds are rolling in, it's a little harder to see the blue sky of who God is, and it's that crisis of belief, are we going to trust him there, are we going to follow him there, and are we going to go where he leads? And, and when we get to the, to, the, to the chapter of Psalm chapter 91, it speaks so deeply into that whole experience. In fact, before we even get to 91, let me just talk for a second about the book of Psalms in general to begin with. 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. And the cool thing about the book of Psalms, this is what's so interesting about this whole book. It's unlike really any other book in Scripture. It has a variety of authors, 73 of them of the 150, at least 73 were written by David. Other authors that wrote other of the Psalms that we have listed. But throughout that 150, what you often see is this range of human emotion, where human emotion intersects who God is. And sometimes that human emotion is sorrow. Sometimes that human emotion is confusion. Sometimes the human emotion you'll see in the Psalms is anger or frustration or, 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 or um, uh, lack of clarity as they go through difficulties that come in life. And what you'll see is many times that the psalmist will just lay all that out there. It's kind of like they back the, the, the emotional dump truck up, right? And they're like, beep, beep, beep. They just dump out the whole load of it, right? Whatever they're feeling, they just bring it to God. And the cool thing about the book of Psalms is is that when you see that and when you read some of these psalms that often uh, reflect such, such difficulty and such struggle that in the end you always see a trust in God. And you always see this expectancy that God is going to deliver and he always does. And so when we get to Psalm chapter 91, here's the thing about this psalm is that we don't know who the human author is that wrote Psalm 91. It doesn't matter because God wrote it anyway. But we don't know specifically who the human author is. Some would say that it's Moses that they believe wrote this psalm, partly because of a tie-in to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to see in just a second. But others because he wrote the psalm immediately preceding this, Psalm chapter 90. And it, it kind of seems like Psalm 91 is part B to what he wrote in Psalm chapter 90 as part A. So we don't know for sure who wrote it. But what we do know, or, or we have a strong suspicion, is that it links back to the days of Moses. Uh, really, not just Moses, but even more Joshua in the book of Deuteronomy. How do we know this? I want you to look at this passage of Scripture. You don't have to turn here. We're just going to hit it and move on. But it's in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And uh, look at what this verse says. Remember, Deuteronomy, the context of it is the second law. And so Israel is about to go in and take the promised land under Joshua's lead. They've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. A new generation has come up. You've got Joshua and Caleb. Joshua's going to lead them into the promised land. Look at what it says here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 33. It says, the eternal God is a dwelling place 
And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So the context of that verse is Israel going in and taking the promised land. The reason I point to this verse is because you're going to hear some of that same language that's going to come out in Psalm chapter 91. And it's going to paint this amazing picture of who God is. And it's going to paint this amazing picture of how God moves and how God works. And if you're one of those today where it's a little hard to see the blue sky of who he is, just let Psalm 91 just soak in and remind you of the God that you serve. And so we're going to jump in here, Psalm 91. Like I said, verse 1 and 2, we're going to be there for a little bit. Um, I've got a watch on. I don't always look at it. Uh, but when you start dozing off or getting up and leaving, I'll know I'll need to wrap it up. But Psalm chapter 91, 1 and 2, we're going to spend a little more time there, so don't, don't, don't lose me, okay? We'll, we're going to finish out the rest of this chapter soon enough. Let's jump in. These first two verses, such amazing verses to kick off this psalm. So the psalmist writes, and he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, when you read those first two verses, you see a lot of imagery, a lot of word picture that's there. It's just such a a beautifully flowing two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So there are a lot of words that I've highlighted up there on the screen. Three of those words have something in common, and it tells us what we are to do as followers of Christ, as those who are in relationship with God. It's the word dwells, it's the word abide, and then down. Down at the end of verse 2, it's the word trust. So those three words are, are, are kind of like, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of uh, uh, wayfinders for us. It tells us what to do in our relationship with God. Let me just say, especially when you find yourself as a Christian in a place where those clouds are blocking your view of the blue sky of who God is, these are three things to keep in mind. That we dwell, we dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and we trust Now, let's talk about those first two words for just a second, dwell and abide. They have a lot of similarities. To me, when I look at those two words, what they sort of paint a picture of is is a picture of a long-haul commitment in relationship with God. It's a long-haul picture. Let, Let me demonstrate it this way. So think about your address. Think about where you live, right? It it may be an apartment, maybe a house, maybe a condo, maybe something different. Think about your address for where you live. And I think for most everybody in here, if somebody was to ask you uh, where you live, your response is not going to be, well, I stay at, and then give your address, right? You're probably not going to use that terminology. Well, I stay at whatever your address happens to be. If somebody asks me that question, hey, hey, where do you live? I'm going to say, well, I stay at, and then give my address. I'm going to say, well, I live, and I'm going to roll out my address. That's probably the way you would do, right? Because you understand and you know this is home, right? This is, my, this is where I live. This is, this is my dwelling place. This is, this is my abode, right? This is where I abide. I don't just stay here temporarily. I don't just kind of move in. You're like two days a week I stay here, and then three days a week I stay there, and another two days a week I stay over there. Like I'm just passing through, right? No, this is a permanence, right? This is where I live, And when you look at this passage of Scripture, let's bring it up again if we can. When you look at these first two verses, 
that terminology that's used, that abide and that dwell, is a picture of a long-haul relationship with God. And right off the bat, this psalm begins to hit us a little bit where it sometimes can get a bit uncomfortable because sometimes, as Christians, we have a tendency to treat God as a short-term fix rather than as a long-term relationship. And we kind of dabble with God. This passage doesn't say, he who dabbles with the Most High. It doesn't say, he who dabbles with the Almighty. It doesn't say, he who in fleeting fashion sort of passes by him at times when it's convenient. It says, no, he who dwells, he who abides in his shelter, in his shadow. There's this picture. The psalmist sets the tone right off the bat that we're talking about people who have a long-term, not perfect, but a long-term relationship with God that's evidenced in the trust that comes through their life. And so three words, it gives us a little bit of a wayfinder, points us in the right direction. We need to abide, we need to dwell, and we need to trust. We trust in him. Now, this is reflected a little bit elsewhere. We don't have these next two passages on the, on the uh, screens behind me. If you want to, you can turn there with me, Psalm chapter 15. But David would write Psalm 15. We don't know if it was before or after Psalm 91. But David would write in Psalm 15, and he would use some of the same terminology. He says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt. He doesn't change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken." David's answer to the question of who may dwell and who may abide is essentially the person who lives their life reflective of a long-term, surrendered, committed relationship with God, right? One who's being molded and shaped and who's in this thing completely, right? I'm not going to live life the way I want to. I'm not going to show up on Sundays and rip people off on Mondays. I'm in this to live the way God wants me to live. That's the answer that David gives. Who can abide and who may dwell. Now we understand this was written in the Old Testament. Jesus would come to earth, Jesus eternal, but would come to the earth in the New New Testament. He also would have something to say about abiding. It's in John 15 verses 1 through 4. He says, I am the true vine, Jesus says of himself. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. In other words, God's wanting to mature us in our relationship. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. John 15, 4, abide in me, Jesus says. There's that, there's that term, abide, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. We just had a great living example of what this verse means because you got a bunch of branches in your yard that you had to clean up this weekend or you're going to get to, right? And, and if you leave those branches there and go back next year, trees aren't going to be growing out of those branches right? They're dead. They're done. Their time is over. (laughs) Branches don't produce fruit. Branches have to be engrafted into the true vine, the main vine, 
And it's that that produces the fruit through them. Jesus is saying something here that is incredibly significant, that we in and of ourselves cannot live the Christian life the way it's to be lived. We have to stay connected to, we have to abide in, we have to dwell with him continually. And we don't earn our way to him, we don't earn his favor, we just stay connected to him. And so going back to Psalm chapter 91, here's what you find. Again, we bring it up, dwell, abide, trust. Those are the three directives there. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. Now, there are some other words that I've highlighted there as well. Here's what's interesting is that you find four different names for God that are listed here in these first two verses. Now, names are significant. Names are important. Names help to kind of teach a little something about the person. Uh, Each name is significant. Uh, Let me just give an example. How many of you, uh, when you were born, your parents gave you three names? Let me see. Let me see your hands, okay? All right, don't, don't be ashamed of your names. Get them up there. All right, most of How many of you got four names when you were born? I'm not talking about when you got married. All right, some of you got four names. I remember when I was in school, um, in high school, there was a, a kid in our class. His, I won't give his last name, but his name was Thomas Alfred Brownsey, and he went by the name Tab, T-A-B, right, all for those. So he had four names. I thought it was the coolest thing. Like, wow, he got four names. I only got three names whenever I was born. But each name for you is significant. When I was born... Each name had a certain meaning. Each name had significance. So my first name, as many of you now know, is Angelo, right? That's my first name. I tried to keep that under wraps when I was a kid because I, I didn't like that name when I, was, when I was a kid. And in grade school, I'd try to hide it. I remember being in the lunchroom one day, and I think they were talking about, hey, first names because I go by my middle And uh, it's like I tried to do everything to keep that name hidden. And I did a pretty good job until our children's pastor, Jeremy Young, came on staff here. And uh, he just sort of blew the lid off the whole whole deal, right? Angelo. So so I heard that uh, I had a relative named Angelo. And so kind of the significance of that name was when my mom and my dad named me, uh, they named me after a relative. Now, fast forward years later, I may have even been here at this church. This was quite a while back. And I was at the cemetery where some of our family is buried in Scriven County. And I was there with my dad. It's where my granddad is buried and uh, other family members. And I remember standing there in that cemetery in Scriven County and uh, standing over a grave, and uh, not one with a tombstone, but where it's all kind of laid out flat and everything's etched into the, to the stone there. And I'm standing over this grave, and it says, Angelo B. Kale. And it's kind of like a, you know, kind of one of those, one of those feelings, right? So it was just this, this relative that I had heard about who's buried there, whose first name I carry, right? There's a significance there. Now, my middle name has nothing to do with that. My middle name, Brooks, actually uh, is part of my mother's maiden name, which was Brookshire, and thankfully they did not name me that, right? Brookshire, yeah. It's like, you know, what? Just call me Angelo. <laughs> so thankfully they left off the end of it, and I just got Brooks, which was perfectly fine with me. I'm, I'm good with that. I have been my whole life. And then Kale... Uh, you know, obviously, last name, family name. My dad used to say that it used to be Matt Kale, which explains my affinity for that restaurant right over there, I guess. Uh, so it was Matt Kale. They said we had family in Scotland, and we got kicked out of Scotland for stealing horses. That was the story about my family's last name. So if you have a horse and didn't tie it up today, you might want to, before I get nearby, I may revert back to the old genealogy. So, so names mean something, right? Names, they capture an essence, and it's the same for you. You have three names. You've got four names, whatever that may be. Every name tells a story. Every name was given for a reason. 
You're still one person. You've got multiple names. Now, here's the thing with God. Throughout the pages of Scripture, at times, especially the Old Testament, we see another name of God that will come up. And for those who maybe just getting started reading their Bible some or they're kind of new to following Christ, they maybe kind of wonder, what's up with all the names, right? I thought he's just one God. Is he a multitude of gods? No, he's not a multitude of gods. He's one God, just like you, one person with multiple names. He's one God, and each name reveals a little something different about who he is. Now, here in these two verses, four names that the psalmist includes here, each of which gives us a little something more of a picture of the God that we know through Christ and the God that we serve. So the first one there, if you look in Psalm 91, verse 1, he mentions the first name of Most High. Now, that's the Hebrew name El Elyon, uh, 36 times in Scripture it's used. Uh, you'll find it elsewhere, obviously, in the Old Testament specifically. And, and this particular name references God's sovereignty. It references that he is sovereign. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He created it, and it is his. Everything belongs to him. That's what's kind of wrapped up in this name that we translate in the English as Most High, in the Hebrew El Yon, Most High. The second name is at the end of verse 1. It's the name Almighty. In the Hebrew, it translates as El Shaddai. In the English, it's Almighty. And what that paints a picture of is the picture that God can do anything that he chooses to do. Not only by right, by virtue of being creator, right, but also by might in that he has all the power to do whatever he wants. There is not one thing that God cannot do that he does not decide to do. Now, don't go out with the philosophical snafu of, well, can he make a rock so big that he can't move it? That's illogical, okay? Anything that's logical that actually makes sense in the realm of reality God can do. He has all might. I mean, he is almighty. He has all power. He can accomplish anything that he chooses and that he desires to do. Nothing is too difficult for him. So you look down a little bit further, and you see a third name there in verse 2. It's the word Lord. Now, look in your, look in your Bible, all right? And, and how many of you, when you read the word Lord there, that word is written in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Raise your hand if that's the case, all right? Probably most of you if you're, if you're looking at your Bible, right? It's in all caps. Anytime you see that in your Old Testament, that word Lord in all caps, it is a translation of a specific Hebrew name for God. That Hebrew name is Yahweh. And it's translated in the English as Lord in all caps, you see it often, over 6,800 times in the New Testament. It is the most personal name for God that we have in the Old Testament. When Moses is at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God says, I want you to set my people free from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is kind of a backpedaling, I don't know about this, I think you may have the wrong guy. And he says to God, he says, so let's just assume I go through with this and I stand in front of the people and I tell them that you are sending them out from slavery and I'm going to be the one that's going to lead them. And let's just assume they ask me what your name is, what should I tell them, right? Exodus 3, God gives them this name, Yahweh, the most personal name that we read of in the Old Testament for God. And, and, and what that name references is the fact that God is self-existent, 
that he is distinct from his creation, and that he is eternal. He is independent of his creation. He does not depend on anyone or anything. He is self-existent. I am. That's how we often translate that, right? We'll translate it as Lord, the translation of the word Yahweh, but the meaning is I am. God is creator. He was before all things, and he is forever, without beginning, without end. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, for those that have studied their Bibles a little bit, you may remember that when you get to the New Testament in the book of John, all through the book of John, you'll see Jesus use this same phrase, this I am. And it's interesting when you think about this, when you start connecting the dots a little bit, because Jesus, much of whose ministry was to the Jews, right? He obviously had ministry as well to those who were Gentiles, but a lot of his audience often were Jews, Throughout the book of John, seven different places, Jesus will use this same phrase, I am, to describe himself. And immediately, whenever he would do it in the book of John, his Jewish audience would say, what is this guy doing? Who does he think he is? Because he would be equating himself with God. And all seven times in, in the book of John, when Jesus would say, I am, he would be stating beneath, kind of between the words, between the lines, in a way that they would all understand that he was claiming to be God. He would say, I am the bread of life. I am better than the Old Testament manna. I am the one who alone who can satisfy. I am the one who alone can fill the human life. Why? Because I am God. I'm the same God who presented himself. Funny we sang this song. That he's the same God who presented himself to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is saying, this is me. I am the bread of life. He would also say, secondly, I am the light of the world, right? In the midst of a world that has fallen and that is in darkness because of sin, Jesus would say, I am the answer, I am the remedy, I am the light, I am God, and I am here. He would say, I am the gate, and the, per, the, the, the picture there that would come to mind for any Jew in an agricultural society such as where they lived in Israel would have understood that he was using shepherd terminology, that in the same way that a shepherd would lay across the gate of the sheepfold at night providing protection for his sheep, Jesus as well would say, I am the gate, I am your protector. Why? Because I am God. He would also say, fourthly in John, that I am the good shepherd, a good shepherd, Psalm 23, provides for his sheep, leads his sheep, gives his sheep rest. Jesus was saying in unmistakable fashion, I am the good shepherd. I am God, the one who leads, the one who provides, the one who guides, the one who protects. He would say in John chapter 11, he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. The context there was that Lazarus had died, passed away. Jesus was about not to carry out a funeral. He was about to do a resurrection and raise Lazarus from the dead. And before he did it, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Why could he make that statement? I've never made that statement. You could never make that statement. Why would Jesus make that statement? Because he is God, the great I am, and the same God who was there before Moses at the burning bush. He would also say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one who saves. I am the one who rescues. And no matter how good of a life you live, no matter how good of a Jew that you've been, no matter how good of a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or whatever that you've ever been, no matter how good, those things don't get us to God. The only thing that gets us to God is the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And he would close it all out in John by also saying, as we just read in John 15, I am the vine. And when you have a relationship with God, you're not going to have the abundant life that he promised in John 10.10 when he says, I've come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. You're not going to have that unless we stay engrafted with the vine, that being Jesus. He is our life. And you can begin to see now how all this plays into Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, he who abides in Christ right, is this picture, I will say to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God who has always existed, the one who is without beginning, without end, who is, who is self-existent, not dependent on anyone or anything, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The word God we find in the fourth word of the entire book, right, of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And it's a name that pulls out another nuance of who God is as supreme deity. There is none like him. Now let me just, um, let me go down a path for just a second real quickly. That what we find here is that whenever we talk about this word for God meaning supreme deity, don't assume that there are other deities because God puts that one to rest. Isaiah chapter 43, for example. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 10 through verse 13. He says, God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, I am the, or am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. There was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? That's God's commentary about himself. This is who I am. There are no other deities he is the supreme deity, the only one. Isaiah chapter 44, I remember, I believe it was this passage when I was in Cuba making a house visit on one of our mission trips. And one of the Cuban nationals that was there with our team that handled the water didn't speak a lick of English. In this visit, we were visiting with a lady who had a household idol basically in her house that she had trusted in. And he launches into this passage that I'm sure I've read, but I had no idea that it applied so well. Isaiah 44, verse 6 through verse 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock I know of none? <laughs> I love the way that verse ends. Because when you've got the God who existed before time, who was without beginning, without end, when he says, uh, I don't know of anyone else like me, that pretty much closes the case, okay? I mean, very clearly, there is no God like the God we read of in Scripture. That's who the psalmist un unveils in Psalm 91, 1 and 2. 
Look at verse 3 in Psalm 91. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. I love that language. He delivers and he covers and he's faithful. Verse 5 through verse 10, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you've made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Now understand, that phrase there, that passage, really the whole psalm, it's not a mantra that we just quote and somehow creates this, this you know, magical force field around us. It's not the intent of this psalm. We know that hard times come. We know that difficulties come. Jesus said in John 16, that in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We know in James it talks about how uh, we're to count it all joy whenever we face trials of various kinds. We know those times come. We know the dark clouds roll in. We, we know that many of the disciples died for their faith. So I don't think the intent of this psalm is, is, is a... Uh, you know, some kind of a mantra that provides some protection over us. But what it does tell us is for the follower of Jesus, we truly walk in victory. Romans 8 got it right, that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us, that he is for us, not against us. No matter what comes in this life, no matter how dark the clouds may get, God is big enough to even take the worst of times and somehow work out of those ultimate good, that he can work even the, 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 the most dark of skies, he can work good out of it. He pulls all things together, works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They'll bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. By the way, that is a phrase that the Satan himself used whenever he tempted Jesus. Verse 13 sounds kind of like a, a reference to the coming millennial reign of Jesus when Jesus will come again. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Look at what it says in verse 14 as he closes. He says, because he's loved me, this is, again, some of God's commentary, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he's known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. You know, when you look at this passage, let's go back to the first part of that, verse 14. Just like in the first two verses, there are three words that give us some direction, that we are to love him supremely. We're to know him deeply in relationship. And we're to call upon him in trust and faith. And what God says about himself is, is that he will deliver. He is our security. He will answer. He will rescue and he will satisfy. We know hard times come. We know hardship invades the lives of believers. We know we find ourselves at times not exactly quite knowing what God is up to. But I think the takeaway of all this, and we'll close with this, is that God reveals himself ultimately so that we might know him 
and so that we might trust in him. And no matter for you how dark those clouds might look right now, the blue sky is still there. No matter spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, how hard times may be right now, the God that we just saw described really well in Psalm 91 is still there too. The question is, do you love him supremely? Are you walking with him in relationship, abiding and dwelling, not dabbling? And are you calling upon him in trust? The God who works good out of even the worst and the God alone who can save. If you've never given your life to Jesus, the whole reason he came to die, to rise, was to pay the penalty of your sin so that you, no matter where you are right now today, if you call on him and surrender and trust Jesus, he'll forgive you and he'll take over if you ask him to. He'll save you forever. If you've never asked him to do that, what's keeping you today from saying, Jesus, would you forgive me of all my sin and rescue and take over my life? He'll do it. And for those of you that have done that, walk closely, trust deeply, and abide. He'll be there all along. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for psalms like this. Thank you for the book of Psalms to begin with, really, that covers the range of emotions, Lord, that we can relate to. And God, we thank you that you are our rescue. We thank you that you are our hiding place. We thank you that you are our security, that you are our sustenance, you are our salvation, you are life. And God, I know that there, by just the sheer numbers today, there are some here in this room or watching online who are at a place where it just seems dark. Those dark clouds have rolled in and it's hard to see you, God. Let this, let this psalm be a reminder, God, that in the same way the blue sky never left, it was just a little harder to see. Help them to know and to trust that you've not left either because you promised you'll never leave or forsake them if they have a relationship with Christ. Jesus, you said in Matthew 28 that, lo, you are with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, God, help them, help each of us to trust and to abide and to dwell, to call on you, to walk with you, and to do that deeply. And, God, we thank you that on your end, you always provide and you always take care of us and you always rescue. And, God, we thank you that when this time on this earth is done, that there's a perfect place waiting, Lord, where none of the struggles of this life will be apart. And so, God, thank you for being the God that you are, most high, almighty, Lord, God, and so much more. We praise you for this, for letting us know you and walk with you each day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.